0: You're tuned to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Operation Reverse Robin Hood, two attorneys and a businessman are the latest snagged in a federal corruption probe. Last week, a longtime Big Island housing official pled guilty to a kickback bribery scheme. HPR's Sabrina
1: Bowden joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So um, we're talking about a Hawaii County scam that essentially swindled the county of about $11 million and created no affordable housing former Hawaii County Office of Housing and Community Development Specialist Alan Rudo. He was meant to assist the county in finding solutions for the housing crisis, but instead of doing that, along with two lawyers and a businessman, they had scammed nearly $11 million from the county and created no housing through a series of back-channel deals and manipulation of the housing code. So, Ruto accepted kickbacks and bribes to ensure certain affordable housing agreements had gone through with no intention of actually building housing and selling off the affordable housing credits. So yesterday, uh, US Attorney Claire Connors held a press conference where she announced these two new indictments of the lawyers Paul Joseph Sula and Gary Charles Zambar. She said the conspiracy lasted about six years from 2014 to last October. And here she describes Alan Rudolph's role. Mr. Rudolph abused his position, abused his public official position by soliciting
2: and accepting kickbacks and bribes, the acts that he engaged in, the acts for which he was paid, for which he received money, included creating and shepherding through the county approval process agreements that would allow developers to avoid the obligation to build affordable housing. So, through these agreements entered into by companies that Mr. Rudo had an ownership interest in, that he didn't disclose them to the county certain developers would be allowed to not build affordable housing in the county.
1: So this was done through Rudo's manipulation of sort of just not telling the county what was going on and through these fake LLCs, which were created by these attorneys to sort of not show where the money was going and who owned it. Right. So through selling off land and selling off affordable housing credits, investigators say the group had scammed the county of nearly $10.9 billion. The FBI was able to seize more than $2.3 million and get back about 45 housing credits, which are requirements when you are building a development um, that can be used and traded for different projects. But the tragedy is, is that
0: none of this affordable housing was ever built and we're in this housing crisis. It's just amazing that, that this went on for so long.
1: Yeah, and there's sort of not really a remedy. They're not really sure when or if the county can get back any of this money or any of these housing credits to begin with.
0: So then the uh, the latest
1: indictments, uh, those attorneys will be uh, making their first appearance in court soon? They should be, yes. Rudo had pled guilty earlier this month and will be sentenced in October. And, and then the uh, businessman Um, He was also indicted. The businessman Rajesh Budabadi is expected to plead guilty at a hearing in August.
0: Okay. So, but yeah, definitely uh, shows, definitely throws the spotlight um, on, uh, you know, public corruption uh, that's been going on here. And it it took this federal investigation uh, uh, to uh, bring it to light. I understand that uh, they were crediting a, a reporter with Environment Hawaii, for coming up with this information, which led the federal investigators uh, onto this case.
1: There is actually a county employee, too, who was, who was involved, who, through this reporter, they alerted the FBI.
0: Yeah, it's it just a stunning uh, development in this case, like I said, uh, particularly during this time when we we're in an affordable housing crisis. But thank you so much, Sabrina. Thank you. We've been talking to HPR's Sabrina Bowden. Uh, you can check out her stories on HawaiiPublicRadio.org. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. In these waning days of National Ice Cream Month, we turn our attention to a local ice cream company, Keith Robbins, no relation to the Robbins family of Baskins and Robbins, but he opened Bubby's Ice Cream on Oahu on March 25, 1985. The business originally manufactured its desserts one flavor at a time in the rear section of the store. A little over a year after opening, it was ravaged by a fire. But thanks to its hotel and restaurant and wholesale business that supplemented the retail side of the company, Bubby survived. It continued serving frozen treats around Oahu for 30-plus years before closing its last retail location at the beginning of 2020. As a longtime staple of local desserts, the name Bubby's might seem out of the ordinary for a Hawaii business. So for today's backyard quiz, can you tell us the origin of the company's name call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right
3: Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nairit Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to strengthening family relationships, such as parents and children together. Nairithawaii.com
0: This morning, as part of our election coverage, we get a chance to hear from Jill Takuda, the former Hawaii State Senate money chair, is running for the 2nd Congressional District. Takuda, who served in the legislature for 12 years, made a previously unsuccessful bid for lieutenant governor and was considering a second run at that number two job, but then switched to CD2 after current Hawaii uh, U.S. Representative Kaika Heli decided not to return to Washington, D.C. We talked to Takuda yesterday after learning she picked up the endorsement of the star advertiser.
4: This definitely means a lot to me because we've been working literally for a year right now to get out throughout the state and especially to our rural communities and the neighbor islands and Oahu. And it's really about uh, getting in front of people, listening to their concerns. And uh, this endorsement really is both validation in the work that we've been doing through this campaign and, quite frankly, throughout my career. But also, to me, it's an opportunity for us to continue to get out and talk with folks about what's important in this race and what do we want when it comes to representation and advocacy in Congress. So really feel good about this endorsement. But at the end of the day, for me, it's about winning the endorsement, the support, the trust of folks in Congressional District 2.
0: And you have been making the rounds to the different islands, just trying to get to the voters who (laughs) who may not be familiar with your work. I mean, you know, you're a veteran lawmaker, but Mm
4: -hmm.
0: talk about the setback that you had in the Senate, you know, because you had a key position with the money committee.
4: You know, as I definitely learned in the 12 years that I served in the Hawaii State Senate, it is about stepping up. Uh, into leadership, taking on critical committees. And when I was there, I was everything from agriculture and Hawaiian affairs to education uh, to ways and means uh, and labor. You know, And for myself, especially when it came to ways and means, I felt a very heavy burden and responsibility in that. That is the hard-earned tax dollars of every single person and business in this state. And we have a huge fiduciary responsibility to really do right by every person. And for myself in Ways and Means, it wasn't just about where did $14 billion at that time of the state budget, where did it go? But are we making sure that it's being used responsibly and not just for the short term, but the long term? Um, And during that final session that I was Ways and Means Chair, you know, I took some strong stances on trying to be sure that when it came to supporting projects like rail, which I do support rail, as a means of transportation equity for many of our workers across the, you know, our communities. But for me, it was about making sure that it wasn't a blank check on the backs of our kids, that we really demanded answers. We demanded an understanding as to, you know, where was the money going? And we can't have these ballooning costs again, that will be borne uh, by future generations who will have to pay it back. And so I did take tough stands and the ways and means committee and did pay the price. But to me, that's our, again, that's our fiduciary responsibility. That's our role to make sure that at the end of the day, each citizen, each taxpayer here in Hawaii feels like we are acting responsibly and we've been entrusted with a great responsibility by them to do right.
0: you have any regrets about, uh, you know, taking those positions, you know, that, that lost you that key leadership role?
4: I don't have regrets about that decision, you know, I think we all run for office. I ran for office knowing that you're not always going to make people happy, but it's about listening. It's about being fair. And it's about taking a stand and doing what's right. And that always sometimes comes with the possibility of consequences um, and outcomes that you may not be happy with. But again, it is about that trust that you are earning from people, to make tough decisions that may not please some special interests out there. But it's about your obligation and your responsibility to the people who elect you. And for myself, that's what it was all about. It wasn't about trying to be safe. It wasn't about trying to maintain power and control over a very strong committee in the Senate. It was about doing what was right for the folks, not just in my district, but throughout the state who were counting on us. To really use their taxpayer dollars well, and think about not just them, but their kids, and what we were leaving behind for them.
0: You know, you're a working mom, and uh, many people credit you and Finance Chair Sylvia Luke for changing the way the legislative session uh, was running. You know, when it came to deadlines, mm-hmm. uh, because both of you, <laughs> yeah. you know, had uh, children and families to think about, and those mm-hmm. were priorities
4: for you. Um, uh, to talk about that change. You know, when I first started Ways and Means as a member, right, I entered as a member of Ways and Means uh, in my freshman year uh, in the Senate. You know, there were often times when our committee meetings and our decision making would go well into the early morning hours, you know, days on end, um, opening, you know, recessing, reconvening. Uh, it literally was a 24-7 operation, which was grueling for both lawmakers and especially the staff, but but more importantly for you know, members of the community and the public who were there just waiting on edge for the outcome of their bill or their, their budget item. And so, you know, when we became, um, when I became Ways and Means Chair, um, working with Finance Chair Luke, you know, we really thought about how can we make this this process both efficient and transparent, but really take into consideration the fact that every single person involved in this process has a life. <laughs> has other obligations, has family obligations, has personal obligations, has other even commitments and obligations within the legislature. Um, And so it was about really um, making sure that there was that balance, but at the same time and first and foremost, making sure that there was that transparency and there was that open process as well. And uh, it definitely took a lot of extra work, you know, on our part to do, you know, a, a lot of the work necessary to make quick decisions uh, when we needed to but at the end of the day i think it really was better for people you know i mean again when you think about it it's not just the lawmakers have to be there to wait for those decision makings and to take those votes it's every person who has a vested interest and who wants to be involved in the process and so we think that that you know about us recognizing that not only do we have families everyone involved in this process does too And it's respecting them while maintaining that transparency and openness that the public should demand and expect from the legislature.
0: I just use that as an example because, I mean, there was kind of a business-as-usual attitude. And then, you know, you Mm -hmm. folks took a stand and made change in order to make a more efficient process.
4: Yeah. I mean, it's nothing like having two moms um, at the head of the table to really make sure that we, we work quickly, we get things done. You know, I remember um, our second son, Aiden, he was born during session, and I still remember having him with me um, when I was a Ways and Means member until early in the morning, and he literally was, you know, sleeping, feeding, living in my office for that last conference week. And, you know, I think I just blessed, I feel blessed that I was able to do that and have him near me. But needless to say, I mean, that experience alone, the fact that I couldn't go home, And feed him and take care of him. I literally had to have him with me 24-7 because that's how long the votes were going. It was difficult, you know, and you saw that all around too, that others are facing similar challenges as well, running out, picking up kids, coming back, running home, making dinner, coming back. And so again, it was about how do we respect um, the balance and the other responsibilities people have while doing the job and the work of the legislature. And I think honestly, it, it made for better decisions too because we were thinking like moms. We were thinking like folks with other obligations and responsibilities, and that's really how we need to approach the work from that perspective of everyday people just trying to get by.
0: And you're looking at a higher office right now, so how do you intend to use that
4: experience going forward? You know, I think for myself, really, I'm running for my kids. You know, I'm running because when I look out my my window as I'm sitting at my kitchen table with my, my family eating dinner, I worry. You know, I worry that they won't have a chance to buy a home, have a family, have their own kitchen table here in Hawaii, uh, see a future for themselves here with just housing that's unattainable and cost of living that's skyrocketing and access to the most basic things, especially in our rural communities and our neighbor islands, that we need every, every day to take care of ourselves and our families. Healthcare, mental health services, educational opportunities, workforce. And, and so for myself as a mother and a parent, I worry for all of our families and our kids. I'm worrying that they are becoming our greatest export, and we should never have found ourselves in this position, and it's been going on for far too long. Um, but especially when it comes to the work and, and, and how my family and my two sons really impact that work, I think it's the sense of urgency I have. It can't be, like you said earlier, business as usual, because I get it. If we don't make change now, if we don't do things differently, if we don't find solutions, it's not just my children that won't be living here in Hawaii and they will be moving away. It's all of our kids. And so I do think that that sense of urgency, understanding the real-life implications of what happens when government does not act, has indecision or makes the wrong decisions, I think for me that has always been been part of my compass in terms of where we need to go and the urgency with which we need to act and the responsibility we have to do far better than we have.
0: You know, the recent polls show that you have a substantial lead uh, over your next opponent, uh, but there is still a huge undecided Mm -hmm. group out there. What do you want those voters to know?
4: You know, first and foremost for me, I want them to understand why I'm running. You know, we can talk for days about positions and issues, but for me, the first thing I do when I get out there and I'm listening to folks, talking story, literally anywhere in our communities on all of our islands, I want them to know my why. Again, that it's about our kids and our families being able to see a future for themselves here in our state. Know how important it is to have someone sitting in that seat that understands from firsthand experience what the struggles and the hopes are of our families And more importantly, has the experience and the know-how to actually get things done. The fact that for me, our whys are so similar, in many cases, they're exactly the same, that it really comes down to to not us, honestly, but our kids and future generations and what we're going to do to really support them, because this has to always be about them. And so for myself, it's getting in front of those undecided voters. It's listening and learning to what they want to see for our future, and then helping them to you know, really understand why I'm running and how at the end of the day, for me, that name on the ballot, my name right there, it's actually all of us. And I would love them when they're looking at that ballot and they see my name, to not just see me, but more importantly, to see themselves and the future that we wanna to create together for our children.
0: That was Jill Takuda, former Hawaii State Senate money chair and a Democratic candidate running for the 2nd Congressional District. In these last two weeks going into the primary, Takuda plans to visit the neighbor islands to meet with voters in this final push to August 13th. Honolulu Civil Beats Reality Check today looks at the Office of Hawaiian Affairs in this political season. Reporter Cassie Ordonio joins us today. Good morning.
5: Good morning. Thanks for having me on here.
0: Yes. And so, you know, you're looking at the Office of Hawaiian Affairs with OHA. And the problem that a lot of people have when they want for this office is name recognition.
5: That's right, and we have um, incumbents like, uh, for example, John Wehe, who's been in OHA for over twenty years
0: already. Wow, the time has gone by fast. Yeah,
5: no, most definitely.
0: And and uh, you know, so you've got uh, the, uh, candidates like him. You've got another one, um, Gosh Leho Issa. She's a, a, a veteran lawmaker. People are familiar with her name. But you also looked at a lot of the folks that are are re- relatively newcomers to the to political office.
5: Relatively new, but then um, some of them actually have ran before, like um, Uwe has run before, Kaylee has ran before, Sam King has ran before, but hasn't really um, had that incumbency yet. So for the at-large race, you have the most crowded field of 11 candidates with Sam King um, raising the most along with um, Kiyoni Souza, but then you also got Zuriaki and Chad Owens who are also raising money uh, within the six months this year.
0: Right, so they're uh, out to hopefully use that money to get their names out there uh, in hopes of uh, having voters uh, vote for them and cast the vote uh, on their ballots.
5: Yeah. And um, with what political observers have said in the story and have told me is that you need between at least 30,000 and 50,000 to run a successful campaign, especially those who may not know their names, you want to get more of their banners out there, at least according to them.
0: And so, gosh, when you talk to, let's say it's like Sam King, uh, you know, what's he going to be doing, um, you know, in the waning weeks of the primary?
5: So far, um, last time I talked to him was about maybe um, actually a couple weeks ago. And uh, from my last story, too, um, so far he's still fundraising and campaigning along with the other candidates as well. Um, uh, So we're going to have to see um, in the coming weeks.
0: And so uh, what else did your research show?
5: Um, it's actually a tight race between uh, Brendan Lee and Kalea Kaka. Akaka, uh, just for the Oahu seat. Um, I thought it was interesting that they seem pretty neck and neck in the um, fundraising. Um, uh, Kalei has, although she raised more money, but Brendan Lee has actually uh, spent more money on his campaign for the Oahu seat.
0: And you looked at uh, how they were, uh, uh, what their positions were on the uh, uh 30 meter telescope
5: yeah so it's basically a mix um, I didn't get to talk to Kalei Kaka on her position however for Brendan um, it basic they basically said that uh, there there's a neutral position on OHA um, maybe that could change I'm not too sure yet um, and while others like they either supported and others um, they don't uh, I know um, uh, just wanted to point out a correction for a uh, Zuri Aki um, he doesn't have a stance on it yet just because he doesn't know um the stat- the status of uh TMT and the development
0: okay and then uh what about the donations uh that uh, these candidates uh were able to raise
5: the donations were actually really competitive, um, especially um, for the at-large race. Like you have at uh, Sam King, who has a lot of lawyers who donated to him, and then also for Keone Souza, who also has um, donations as well. Zuriakis has also been getting some support, and then um, seeing a Chad Owens donor um, also was a union.
0: Okay, and and basically, then uh, they're going to just be using this money to what print out banners. More signs, that kind of thing.
5: Yeah, t-shirts, banners, signs, forums, all of that.
0: And uh, gosh, so so as far as uh, kind of the the money that they've been able to raise, um, uh, anything else? Any other revealing uh, facts you, that you found out about? It was
5: just pretty straightforward. I know that, um, for example, I've been seeing more of Keone Souza and um, Sam King's banners um, around town. Um, so it basically shows um, who's trying to spend more money to get their name out there.
0: Okay. But, yeah, big push uh, during the primary, and then we'll see uh, uh, who makes it to the general. But uh, thank you so much, Cassie. Thank you. That was Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Cassie Ordonio with today's reality check. You can read the story online at civilbeat.org.
3: Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing art experiences for the community. Learn more about summer art classes and workshops for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org.
6: I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, what problems does the blockchain solve anyway?
2: The fact that Bitcoin is independent means it's not controllable by the government.
6: And will DeFi or decentralized finance actually work? For me right now, the jury is out. Part three of our series on blockchain and cryptocurrencies. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at seven.
3: Support for HPR comes from the Magical Mystery Show featuring performances of Illusion and Sleight of Hand in a Victorian-styled setting, a family show at the Hilton Waikiki Beach and Maui's Fairmont Keolani, oahumagic.com.
0: When our listeners have comments or questions about the interviews we air, they leave a message on our TalkBack line or they send us an email uh, at our TalkBack inbox. And from time to time, we share those messages on the air with you. We fielded some additional questions on TalkBack following our roundtable talk with new Honolulu Police Chief Joe Logan. Uh, The Honolulu Police Department provided written statements in response to those questions.
4: Hi, my name is Wes from Honolulu. A lot of times at construction, I know they're special duty, I guess, technically not on duty, but they're
3: either talking to the construction workers, they're looking at their phone and scrolling through. When I was younger, I remember them directing traffic,
4: making everything go smoothly. Now, even if people are, like, confused by the cones and traffic routes and honking their horns, The officers don't look up from their phone or they're sitting in their vehicle and they don't even come out, they they don't help, and I don't know what the policy is, but I've seen accidents, I've seen near accidents, I just don't understand why they can't make everything go smoother
3: while they're on duty or special duty, thank you
0: and the department's special duty policy states that watch commanders should check on the special duty officers working in their districts uh, unless there's a special duty supervisor if there are complaints the professional standards office or the division that handles the special duty jobs can look into it you should just inquire and file a complaint
4: hi this is fran calling from chinatown and My question is about what is the purpose of the Chinatown substation? Thank you,
0: Ty. Well, according to HPD, the current Chinatown substation was opened back in 2000. It is staffed 24-7 and provides a steady police presence for the area. Members of the public often stop by to make police reports, express their concerns, or ask for information. District 1 patrol officers, bicycle officers, and property crime detectives are among the personnel assigned there.
4: My name is Diana from Kaizua, on Oahu. How come we keep hearing about people getting rearrested for the 20th, 30th, 40th, 50th time? You know, what can be done to take these people off the street? Thank you.
0: And HPD says our officers share this frustration, but we know that the police are just one part of the justice system. Prosecutors and the courts determine whether an individual is charged and if found guilty, what their sentence will be. Here's another one.
4: Yeah. Hi, my name is Jim. I'm from Kailua. Regarding overtime pay and overspending, we've had situations where police officers are clocking overtime at DUI checkpoints and they're in Vegas. We've had a lot of overspending in FEMA, just almost blank check type operation. We just had an article regarding near $40 million overtime pay.
5: I'm wondering about
4: accounting, auditing, and the way these people had.
0: And uh, the HPD's response was that the city recently conducted an audit of the department's overtime spending and practices and identified several areas for improvement, including an antiquated manual pay- payroll system, inconsistent payroll procedures, and the use of patrol officers for non-patrol assignments. Uh, the department generally agreed with the findings and has already taken steps to standardize overtime tracking, develop a computerized payroll system, and uh, is looking for other ways to attract more officers. Uh, Thanks to HPD for the written statements answering your questions. Uh, That was after our show with the new HPD Chief, Joe Logan. If you have a question or something to share, email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org or call our talkback line 792-8217. For the last decade, the Makaha Learning Center has been a hub, providing opportunities for Native Hawaiian students to get a glimpse into possible career paths into construction. The nonprofit recently began offering a solar energy certification program for young men and women should they decide to go down that path. Recently, we were joined in studios by Executive Director Danielle Irwin to explain this latest effort to help our young people living on the Waianae Coast.
7: We're a Native 501C3. Um, We serve primarily the Waianae Coast and Native Hawaiians, and our mission is to bring trade opportunities and education um, out to the coast. Our state has very aggressive renewable goals, and we want to come alongside that and take some of the opportunities that are going to come with that and make those accessible to our students. And so, you know, we're trying to embrace that as much as possible and allow our community to be a part of that conversation and a resource for those goals. How are you getting the young people excited about green energy? <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a little different for everybody. To be honest with you, most of them come in just looking for an opportunity and they kind of fit themselves into that picture. Um, solar is going to present a really sustainable opportunity for them where they're going to be able to make a living and be able to stay here in the island. So that is enough to get them excited. And so how are you structuring the the
0: training program?
7: So we are actually accredited by NCCER, which is the National Center for um, Construction Education and Research, also by NABCEP, which is the North American Board of Certified Energy Professionals. There aren't very many of us that have those type of certifications where we can actually offer national credentials. So our training is very formal um, and students do emerge with that piece of paper that's going to be able to validate the skills that they've learned. We are now in our fourth cohort. so. It was interesting. We had planned um, and kicked off right in the midst of COVID. So there was a little bit of learning that we had to undergo, but yeah, it's been successful and we've been seeing more and more interest in it. So how many people have gone through the program? Um, After the end of this year, we'll be sitting at right about 200, but that's a split between our core construction classes and our solar classes. And then you have something else going on Molokai. Yes, so actually we've um, partnered with um, Ho'ahu, over on Moloka'i. They're really progressive. They're taking their um, energy future into their own hands. And so they have some projects planned out there. And part of that is training up a workforce that's gonna be able to build their projects and then also maintain them. So um, we've partnered with them. They, they love the mission. They love that they're gonna be able to get their um, people certified. And so we actually trained um, instructors from that island to be able to deliver the training. So then when the
0: students uh, graduate and get this certification, I mean, do they just go to work the next day? How does that
7: work? (laughs) Are there that many openings in the solar field right now? Some of them do. Um, I come from a solar background, and uh, there really is a a merry-go-round of trained um, solar installers. They jump from company to company because there's just not enough people out there that are trained. And so there really is opportunity. In fact, after every uh, solar program that we have, we invite contractors out, and we have an intimate meet-and-greet job fair. Um, From our last solar cohort, we've already had four or five people that have been picked up in the industry right off the bat.
0: How long are these uh, uh, classes, how long is the program, and then um, are you targeting uh, particular schools?
7: Because we serve Native Hawaiians, we're really, the programs are open to Native Hawaiians across the state. We're never gonna say no to somebody who's hungry for an opportunity. But with that being said, our primary target is that young adult group, um, anywhere from junior, senior in high school up to late 20s or so, you know, after life happens and they wanna get serious. So we do have a lot of partnerships with our schools out there and really trying to get them primed and prepped for that next step. So what's the plan for the next, what, three years, five years? It was always a goal to be able to create a blueprint that could be replicated, similar to what we did on Moloka'i. It's not easy to get the type of accreditation that we have, however, with that, we are able to sponsor um, ancillary, ancillary training centers. And so I think that can be a resource for other people that want to do something similar. But we are expanding our classes and our offerings. We really are trying to focus in the green space right now. So looking at programs to bring in other things to support green infrastructure, such as installing DC fast chargers and being able to maintain those. There's nothing more frustrating to go than trying to go charge your electric car and the, the one charger that's available is broken, you know. So um, we are branching out uh, into those areas. So really you're giving
0: these young adults a leg up uh, in high school before they even get to, let's say, a community college or a university level.
7: Yeah, we are. So we're starting them there. And I think that um, if anything, they're going to come out of the program knowing better about what they want their future to look like. To be honest with you, sometimes people go through the solar program and they realize that they don't want to be on a roof, you know? Um, and so then they start to set their sights elsewhere. And I think that there's going to be a little bit of trial and error and experimentation. And the sooner you can get that out of the way, the better. And there is a
0: lot of renewed interest in vocational training programs you know in the high school.
7: Yeah absolutely so we've actually uh, formed a partnership with YNI High School and we work specifically with the students that are in their alternative learning opportunities class and so these are students that are not your traditional learner or they're too smart for school (laughs) Um, or or they're uh, at risk of dropping out and so we try to capture them at that junction uh, so that we can provide um, a different pathway for them and get them prepared for that. And then how are you funded? So we're funded by um, a number of private organizations. Hawaii Unified actually um, provided a lot of the seed money to get things started. We're partnered with Kamehameha Schools, the Hawaii State Energy Office. And then we're also partnered with a lot of other organizations that have similar goals that they're trying to meet, such as the Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement. uh, So a lot of different places. You know, I would say that what we do is pretty unique just because it's not just about the construction education. That's just the pathway. But we focus on aloha and teaching those soft skills, if you will, as much as we focus on the technical skills. So I think that, you know, that is a vital piece that's gonna help to secure the success. I think that we're starting to realize that pushing people into four-year traditional um, college is not for everybody, especially when you're looking at um, a place like the Waianae Coast where, you know, Three, only 3% of our graduates are proficient in math, and only 15% are proficient in reading and writing. And it's really hard to be college-bound with those types of statistics. So people are excited about this new opportunity, you know. Um, and I'd really like to encourage uh, contractors and for-profits um, that are... In the industry uh, to be able to come alongside organizations like us, you know, we can provide pathways and we can provide personal development and we can get the technical skills out there, but it's really going to take um, industry partners to say yes to a lot of our graduates and on the solar side that's that's um, been really successful, but we can use more.
0: That was Danielle Irwin, Executive Director of the Makaha Learning Center, talking about uh, its efforts to provide job training opportunities in the energy industry for young people, particularly Native Hawaiians living on the Waianae Coast.
3: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Haleakala Ranch, with a legacy of livestock, conservation, and land stewardship since 1888, working to create, maintain, and preserve open spaces for the Maui community. More at HaleakalaRanch.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Andrew Harvey. I'm author of The Hope and Play Life More Beautifully. And next time on
2: New Dimensions, I'll be talking about putting love into action all over the
3: world now. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Alamoana Hotel by Mantra, committed to the health and safety of guests, welcoming Kama'aina and visitors, featuring sunset views from the re-envisioned pool deck. Reservations at alamoanahotel.com.
0: We've heard it all before. Don't start smoking. And if you are a smoker, quit uh, smoking and stay away from secondhand smoke. That should help to prevent lung cancer, which is the leading cause of cancer-related deaths. Well, Dr. Lonnie Park and Dr. Iona Chang say that there may be more to it. They're researchers at the University of Hawaii Cancer Research Center. They've just received $700,000 in funding from the National Cancer Institute to study the role of structural racism in lung cancer development. It's part of their work with a multi-ethnic cohort study. Their past studies have shown that Native Hawaiians, along with African Americans, are more susceptible to lung cancer. Now they're trying to figure out why. Here's Dr. Lonnie Park talking to HBAR's intern, Emily Tom, about her upcoming study.
2: Earlier research does use Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, and Pacific Islanders. It's aggregated as a single group. And that disaggregation is very important. But I understand the challenges of why disaggregation may not always occur, especially when uh, you don't have a huge population of Native Hawaiians. But in Hawaii, we are fortunate to have that. So we can disaggregate the data, and this allows us the opportunity to really understand why there are these disparities and what we can do to prevent that. Mm-hmm.
6: It seems like in a lot of studies, indigenous populations are neglected. First of all, how did native Hawaiians get introduced to this conversation? Well, the study
2: was being, uh, was led and um, is in collaboration with USC, but it was led by the University of Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And University of Hawaii has recognized that it is important to study the population of the state. Uh, native Hawaiians comprise of a, a proportion of um, the state. And if we look at just uh, Hawaii cancer registry data, it's been shown that across the decades, there's been a persistent sort of inequity when it comes down to lung cancer incidence. Um, Native Hawaiians do have a higher rate of developing lung cancer. And that's, so that has always been a question of a lot of the investigators at our cancer center, wondering mm-hmm. why. And, and thus here we are. So it was, I would say it is intentional because the idea is that we are always trying to reduce the burden, um, the cancer burden in in the populations of the state. Mm
6: -hmm. I couldn't help but notice that so many of your studies and so much of your research talks not just about cancer, but cancer in relation to race and ethnicity. Why do you find yourself attracted to that specific part of the field?
2: So one thing is I I, did, I grew up in Hawaii. I, I also lived in the mainland for a period of time, but I grew up in Hawaii, and I think the benefits of living in Hawaii is that you really do have an appreciation for it, mm-hmm. um, and that sort of grounds you, uh, and the grounding helps because it is a way of bringing back whatever we end up doing, whether it's scientific research, whether it's art, writing, we do wanna come back um, home, and that doesn't necessarily have to mean it physically coming back, but the way of just emotionally coming back. And, it's a, and in, one, in part, it's when you understand the diversity and you appreciate that, that makes a huge difference. There are various populations, and um, this diversity is important to recognize. So I was able to carry this with me, you know, throughout my adulthood and um, living in the mainland. But especially here at the Cancer Center, our, it is part of our mission to understand and reduce the, dis- uh, the cancer disparities that do exist. So while I gravitate towards that, the I would say that the University of Hawaii and the University of Hawaii Cancer Center do help foster that sort of trying to uh, uh, appreciate the diversity in our population.
6: The grant that you were just given is going off of your previous study, which was published in 2019, correct?
2: Yes. So this study does build upon sort of multiple studies that, and really our work investigating trying to understand uh, lung cancer disparities across uh, these five populations.
6: Right, so, right. And what did you find there with the disparities?
2: Okay. So in the 2019 paper, uh, we This is actually, that paper was actually a follow-up of a 2006 New England Journal of Medicine paper. (laughs) Wow. But it does, um, it confirms that really there are population differences when it comes to lung cancer risk, even after accounting for variations in risk factors, such as the primary risk factor being smoking history. So it counts for the amount they smoked, the duration in which they smoked, and those who have quit, the time in which they have quit. And when accounting for that, we found that African-Americans Um, as well as Native Hawaiians, remain at higher risk of lung cancer than whites, and then Japanese Americans and Latinos have a lower risk of disease. In another study, we found that African Americans do smoke more intensely per cigarette than, say, Japanese Americans. Um, That may result in having a higher sort of carcinogen load per cigarette.
6: Before we move on, because Mm -hmm. that's what I really want to get to, what do you mean by smoking intensity?
2: What we can measure is their sort of internal smoking dose. So nicotine is one of the uh, addictive components of smoking. Uh, nicotine is metabolized into various uh, metabolites. And if we sort of measure that in the urine and sum it all together, you can identi- You can sort of quantify how much smoking dose that one may have per cigarette. Uh, the 2019 study, what we did was we accounted for that. And we found that racial ethnic disparities still remain. So wow. while we can't explain some of the differences in risk, where African Americans do have a higher smoking intensity compared to whites and Japanese Americans have a lower smoking intensity compared to whites, that just the smoking intensity alone cannot explain those
6: differences. So, mm. so in a very like overgeneralized summary, if an African American or Native Hawaiian person smoked the same amount for the same amount of time as a white person, the risk for the African-American or a Native Hawaiian would be higher Yes. for lung cancer? Yes, okay. and if
2: we account for things that we have investigated, such as genetics, um, as well as smoking behaviors, we can't really explain those differences. So we, there's still a little bit m- more work to be done.
6: Yeah, so it sounds like there are still some questions left unanswered from that. What is your new study going to try to answer?
2: So our new study is trying to build upon this to explain those ethnic differences in lung cancer risk. Um, So what we don't know with African Americans is why they have a higher smoking intensity per cigarette. And with Native Hawaiians, we have no idea why they have a higher risk of disease. So the study is looking at measures of structural racism in order to explain uh, behaviors of smoking change, um, lung cancer risk, as well as look at DNA methylation. So this mm-hmm. is really to identify the biological pathways that may be involved um, with structural racism.
6: What do you hope to accomplish with your next study?
2: So with this study, I really hope that we, actually, we identify what type of structural racism measures are associated with either um, changing smoking behavior, lung cancer risk, as well as understanding the mechanisms. And if so, that provides some very nice evidentiary data for either whether it's working with policyholders or key stakeholders or community advocates so that way we can make some structural interventions um, or social interventions to relieve the uh, disparities the cancer disparities in the population
6: with that policy making do you tend to go into research and studies with the intention of helping to create a certain policy, or are you just trying to lay out the facts and hope that somebody else picks them up and uses them for something good? I'd definitely
2: say the latter, mm-hmm. uh, because we cannot dictate what we will find. Uh, we do want to conduct research so that our findings are accurate, so we can provide the appropriate evidence for the key stakeholders. Uh, after we find these, this information, we are all happy to work with either policymakers, stakeholders, or advocates. But we wait to see what the evidence is, um, the data is actually telling us.
6: It seems like, from my experience, just growing up in Hawaii, too, in school they just kind of tell you, don't smoke cigarettes, stay away from secondhand smoke, and that's kind of where the conversation ends. Do you feel like with this new research, you're trying to change that narrative a bit?
2: Yes. So I wouldn't say I'm the only one. There's definitely a lot of other investigators that have been doing a lot of important work but you're very right to. T- um, it's an excellent point that you're tapping on that we do put a lot of pressure on the individual that don't start smoking initiation. If one is currently smoking, that they should try to quit. And while that's excellent advice, we also understand that there are other barriers that might be in place, whether they're structural barriers, um, whether it's psychosocial barriers. Um, there are multiple components, and it's a lot more complicated than we used to believe. Uh, that's that's why there's more research being done on understanding um, social determinants of health, psychosocial factors, as well as these um, structural factors that might be in our policies and our laws that are sort of um, becoming barriers.
0: That was Dr. Lonnie Park talking about the role of structural racism in lung cancer risk. Her next study will investigate why Native Hawaiians are more vulnerable to lung cancer than whites, Latinos, and Asian Americans. In this morning's backyard quiz we take a look at bubby's homemade ice cream and desserts it was founded in honolulu by keith robbins nearly 40 years ago bubby's originally manufactured all of its ice cream one flavor at a time in the back of the store uh, although the entire location was destroyed in a fire a year later, uh, the business survived thanks to a growing wholesale demand for their frozen treats. The company eventually expanded to a second retail location in the Hawaii Kai area, and it built manufacturing facilities in Iaea. For today's quiz, we wanted you to tell us how the company got his name or got its name. Uh, here's a hint. Uh, Bubby is one of the Yiddish words for grandmother. And yes, the company was named for the woman who first introduced founder Keith Robbins to ice cream. His grandmother, Esther, is the answer to today's backyard quiz. Uh, and even though the company closed its University Avenue location in 2015 and its Hawaii location in 2020, the good news for ice cream lovers is you can still find Bubby's Mochi Ice Cream in local supermarkets. And congrats to Nancy from Manoa. You got it right. That's today's quiz. If you have an idea for one, send it to TalkBack at (laughs) hawaiipublicradio.org. that's a wrap for us today. Tomorrow we take a closer look at where our conservation funding is going and whether we have enough money to meet our environmental goals. Share your comments or questions about what you've heard by calling our Talkback line 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.